Hey, good evening there, my kiddos. It is February, no, sorry, March 6th, 2021. Five days after Sonia Camille's eighth birthday. I'm sure the birthday glow is wearing off a little bit, Sonia. It's okay. But guess what? Mommy's is coming up here on the 15th. Don't forget, you guys. March 15th is Mommy's birthday. I'm sure you'll hear about it. Auntie Candace's is the 13th. So, just remember. Anyways, want to read you some more Wilder King tonight. We are on chapter 10 of book 3. Chapter 9, if you remember, um... The three, Percy and Aiden and Dobro, are taken off towards the, what are those places, what's that place called? Oh, I forget. The soupy swamps of Serengeti or the ruined plains of whatever, I forget. Anyways, chapter nine was just all about them walking along and... Dobro telling that crazy story about uh, the bear, the alligator, and the bear, and what else? Yeah, oh, and the flea. And it turned out that the flea was, he subdued the bear, and he made the bear call him his boss because he kept biting the bear and the bear the bear said uh, let's see I surrender Mr. Flea mercy so Mr. Flea stood on Mr. Bear's nose and looked him in the eye and said I ain't no hard man Mr. Bear but I ain't gonna let nobody boss me or my people you hear me bear I hear you, Mr. Flea. And then the flea sung a different song. I like my bear with a little sauce. This here forest got a brand new boss. So that was Dobro's big story, all to say that he's not too disappointed about getting whooped by a whole swarm of mosquitoes. And then Percy and Aiden are giving him a rough time about wanting to jump back in a a big mud puddle and get all of his dirt smeared back on him even though his skin's getting he's getting kind of burnt in the sun they said no you aren't gonna wallow in any mud and he said they said you aren't subjecting my family to that feechy stink your breath alone is going to be as much as most civilizers can stand and Percy said, we're almost to the sinking canyons. Next water we see will be the little creek that flows at the bottom of the canyons. Okay, so chapter 10 is called Into the Canyons. The morning of the third day after leaving Houston Green, the three travelers struck a little creek that was struggling across the plain. This is it said Percy. This is the creek that flows through sinking canyons. Aiden took another look at the muddy stream. 
he could easily jump across it. It wasn't even deep enough to support fish larger than minnows and shiners. He cocked his head and looked questioningly at Percy. This little creek cut a canyon? Aiden had seen a canyon once in the hill country. Through it roared the upper branch of the mighty River Tam, boiling white as it leaped over rocks and plunged into pools, swirling and thundering, cutting its own path through the canyon's granite walls on its way to the sea many leagues away. Aiden could hardly imagine the River Tam cutting a canyon, but this little stream didn't seem possible. As they hiked up the stream, however, its banks deepened and grew further apart. And soon the banks of the creek weren't banks anymore, but the sides of a little valley through which the stream ran flat and wide, not even ankle deep, in muddy rivulets that crossed and recrossed one another like braided hair. Watch this, said Percy as he stepped into the braided stream. The water ran over the tops of his feet and flowed cloudier a little distance before the stirred-up mud settled out again. Percy pointed to where he had just stepped. Watch my boot prints. The clear imprint of Percy's boots melted away as the rivulets braided themselves back together in the soft mud. A hundred men could troop up this stream bed, and a quarter hour later, there would be no trace of them. The stream was forever shifting, constantly flowing into new patterns of its own design. There, out in the open, was a secret passageway of sorts, covering tracks almost as quickly as the travelers could make them. Before long, the stream bed had sunk more deeply beneath the level of the plain. The steep sides of the valley were noticeably higher than the three travelers' heads, and Dobro was growing visibly nervous. This ain't no place for a feche, he said. I got no business going underneath the ground. You aren't underground, Aiden said, pointing at the mud they were slogging through. There's the ground, and it's under you. That ain't the ground I'm talking about, Dobro answered. He pointed at the valley wall to the grass and trees that grew well above them. I'm talking about that ground. He began moaning the warning chant that his mother had taught him about sinking canyons. Fallen are the Fiji folks in a gully down a hole. No more fistfights, no more jokes in a gully down a hole. To the river, to the woods, in a gully down a hole. Time to leave these neighborhoods in a gully down a hole. By now the valley had deepened into a canyon. Its sheer walls were so high that not even Dobro could heave a rock up to the canyon rim. Aiden had never seen another place like it. The midday sun reflecting off the sheer canyon walls was almost blinding. Up near the rim, at the top of the canyon wall, ran a band of the same red clay that prevailed throughout much of Cornwall. Below that, and all the way down to the canyon floor, the wall was a swirl of colors, ranging from white to deep pink 
to lavender and every combination thereof. The further they traveled up the canyon, the higher the walls rose above them, to 50 feet, to 100 feet, even to 150 feet in places. On either side of the walls folded on either side the walls folded themselves into fissures and crevices. In places they bulged out in rounded buttresses like the base of a swamp tree. On either hand numerous fingers, smaller canyons connected to the main canyon like tributaries joining a river. They created a maze like complex of caves and hidey holes perfect place for lying low, an easy place to defend against a much larger force, if need be. Knife-thin ridges, some a hundred feet high, spurred out from the canyon walls. The canyon floor was dotted with great pink and white chimneys and towers, some round and boulder-like, some so high and spindly they looked as if they might topple over any minute. Time to leave these neighborhoods, Dobro repeated, remembering his mother's warnings. But Aiden was fascinated with the place. What is it made of? he asked, admiring the breathtaking beauty of the scene. Some sort of stone? Not stone, Percy answered, leading his brother to the nearest spur. He swiped his hand across the surface of the wall in a shower of sand cascaded to the ground. Then he held his hand up to Aiden's face, showing him the layer of slick white clay that remained. Sand and clay, he said, waving his hand to gesture around him. This whole canyon is nothing but clay and tight-packed sand. A hundred strides up the canyon, Percy pointed up at a tree that dangled upside down against the canyon wall half its roots still clinging to the red soil of the canyon's rim. That tree was still standing when we got here two years ago, Percy said. Fell in when the ground beneath it collapsed in a rainstorm last year. He pointed at a second tree near whose roots snaked out of the clay and into midair. That one is liable to go next. Dobro swung a few steps toward the far side of the canyon, as if he expected the tree to crash down on him any second. Time to leave these neighborhoods, he muttered, but neither Arrelson paid him any mind. Trees falling down, Dobro continued under his breath. Sand walls liable to drop off and bury us alive. All right, Dobro, Aiden said, we know. Sinking canyons is no place for a Fiji. That's what I've been trying to tell you, Dobro answered. No vines to swing on. Nothing but scrubified trees that ain't hardly worth climbing. Ain't ever enough water to get the hairy part of my foot. Ain't even enough water to get the hairy part of my foot wet. He suddenly broke off. What was that? He whispered, pointing at a low chimney nearby. Hide to that big rock. He picked up a hardened lump of white clay about the size of his fist, and when the top of a head appeared from behind the chimney, he cut loose with the clay ball, 
which whistled mere inches from sandy curls that quickly disappeared again behind the chimney. A spy! Dobro yelled. I ain't gonna tolerate a feller spying on me like he was a bunny in a brush pile. It ain't neighborly. He had already picked up another jagged clay ball when Percy grabbed his throwing arm. Hold on, fireball, Percy laughed. It's one of our sentries. He cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted toward the chimney. Slider turtle! That was the password. A hand waved from behind the chimney. You can come out, Percy called. All clear. Arliss, Percy shouted when the sentry came out. Arliss? Aiden called after him, delighted to see the young miner who once led them through the caverns under the Bonifay Plain six years earlier. Arliss rubbed his eyes. Aiden, is that you? It's me. Aiden answered, and the two young men stood looking at one another, not sure what to say. You still don't look much like a miner, Aiden finally said, looking up and down his old friend's long and lanky frame. But I still got the miner's head, Arliss said, tapping a skull with a skinny finger, and that's worth plenty with the boys at Greasy Cave. This is Dobro, Aiden said by way of introduction. Dobro, this is Arliss. Arliss extended a hand to shake with Dobro, but Dobro didn't seem to notice as he flashed a greenish, gappy grin at the civilizer and stepped up to give him a headbutt of greeting and good fellowship in the Feechy manner. Aiden grabbed Dobro's arm to stop him, lest, lest he should break the taller man's nose with his forehead. He discreetly gestured at Arliss's outstretched hand. After a moment of confusion, Dobro placed his clay ball in Arliss's hand, the same clay ball he had meant to throw at Arliss's head a few moments earlier. Dobro's Aiden wasn't sure what he was what he was ready to go. Aiden wasn't sure he was ready to go into details. Dobro's an old friend. Arliss kept smiling, but his eyes narrowed the least bit as if he were trying to figure this strange fellow out. From the Fiji fan, Dobro clarified. A spark of recognition lit Arliss's face. Ah, Fiji, he said knowingly. Now he understood why Dobro looked and talked so peculiar. That's right, Dobro said. I'm a natural-born Fiji, but I figured it was time to give civilizing a try. Arliss looked at Aiden. We've been speculating whether you'd bring Fichis with you when you came back. Well, one Fiji, Aiden began, and only because he wouldn't take no for an answer. But Arliss couldn't contain himself any longer. He was too excited to listen to Aiden's explanation. Wait till I tell the boys he said, and he turned and sprinted up the canyon. Aiden turned to Dobro. If you want to pass yourself off as a civilizer, you've got to stop talking about the Fiji Fen. And you need to know about shaking hands, Percy added. Shaky hands? Dobro said. 
No, thank you. My hands is good and steady, and I aim to keep them that way, whether I'm featurefied or civilized. No, Dobro, shaking hands. It's a civilizer greeting. It's what we do instead of headbutting. If somebody reaches a hand out like this, Percy extended his right hand, you grip it nice and firm and give it a shake. Try it. Dobro grabbed Percy's hand and began to shake it violently back and forth like a terrier shaking a rat. No, Dobro, not that way, Percy yelled, wrenching his hand out of Dobro's powerful grip. You're not supposed to shake the other fellow's arm bone to jelly. Watch how Aiden and I do it. But Aiden and Percy never gave their handshaking demonstration. Just then, Errol appeared from around the nearest bend in the canyon. He was running toward the three travelers, and running surprisingly well for a white-haired man in his sixties. Just behind him were Jasper and Brennus. Aiden ran to embrace his father. The old man's cheeks were wet with joyful tears, and he could barely speak. Couldn't, in fact, say anything but Aiden's name over and over. Aiden embraced Brennus and Jasper with all the affection of a long-lost brother, and there were more tears of joy all around. Dobro was so affected by the scene that he, too, began to cry sloppily and loudly. Father, this is Dobro Turtlebane, Aiden began, the Fiji friend I have told you about. You are very welcome to Sinking Canyons, Dobro, Errol said, extending his right hand. Aiden was afraid for a moment that Dobro would seize his father's hand and shake his arm out of its socket, but instead he fell on Errol's neck and buried his face in the older man's shoulder. Thank you for all them kind words, Mr. Errol, he sobbed. Any daddy of Aiden's is a daddy of mine. And I ain't had no daddy since the gator down the devil's elbow and hawked mine out in the flatboat and ate him, and me no more than a yearling at the time. Percy continued the introductions. Dobro, this is Brennus, our eldest brother, and Jasper, my twin. Dobro seized both brothers in a single hug and cried again. Aiden looked beyond his father and brothers and for the first time realized how many men were living in sinking canyons. There must have been sixty or seventy of them, all keeping their distance out of the respect, out of respect for the family's reunion. Errol noticed the look of astonishment on Aiden's face. Our band of outlaws, he said, throwing his thumb over his shoulder. Didn't Percy tell you? Chapter 11. It's called Introductions. Percy didn't tell me there were so many. Aiden recognized many of the men, but nearly half were strangers to him. Who are they? He asked. Errol led his sons and Dobro to the clusters of men who had been watching them. You remember the greasy cave boys he said. Of course, Aiden answered. 
We saw Arliss before. Ernest, Cedric, Clayton. He shook hands with each in turn. And Gustus, the foreman. Gustus gave a toothy grin, then broke into an energetic but tuneless version of the song Aiden had composed for the Minor Scouts the night they went down to the caverns beneath Bonifay Plain. Oh, the miners brave of Greasy Cave, they did not think it odd to make their way beneath the clay where human foot had never trod. The rest of the miners joined on the chorus, improving it only slightly. Fody roady 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 roll, de fody roady roady fiddly fody roll. King Darrow got it in his head that you were hiding out in the mines at Greasy Cave, Gustus said. Thought your old friends were protecting you, which we would have, if ever you had asked us. So he outlawed us. Every last one of us, Cedric added. Your pap got wind of the outlawing and sent Brennus to fetch those of us who might want to hide out in the sinking canyons. Gustus continued, all five of us from the Bonifay adventure came along, plus another eight. He gestured at a group of men, short and stocky like the rest of the Greasy Cave boys, who waved bashfully at Aiden. Their skills have been invaluable here in the canyons, Errol remarked. I don't know how we would have gotten along without them. And then there are the last campers. Errol gestured toward a group of men, all clad in buckskin. Massey! Floyd! Aiden shook the men's hands vigorously. Do you still do any timber rafting? Hugh! Isom! Big Hayes! Little Hayes! Cheney! Burl! Cookie! Are you cooking for the men here, too? Yeah, the old cook grumbled. Not that anybody appreciates all the trouble I go to. And it ain't easy feeding sixty folks. He gestured at Aiden and Dobro. Now sixty-two folks on the stringy deer and skinny possum we live around here. Same old cookie, Aiden smiled. Same old grouchy cookie. We got outlawed for Aiden and abetting an enemy of the king said Massey. You being the enemy of the king, don't you know? Just imagine it. I don't even know what aiding and abetting means, but here I am guilty of it. Shows you never do know. But if I got to be outlawed for something, I like the sound of aiding and abetting. It's a sight better than cattle rustling or poaching. Jasper come to fetch us when your pa heard we was outlaws, said Floyd. And I don't mind telling you it's a heap more fun being in a band of outlaws than outlawing alone. These boys have kept us in meat since they got here, Errol added. They can always find us a deer or a wild hog. Panarian alligator, Massey remarked wistfully. Errol gestured toward two older men whom Aiden knew very well. King Darrow outlawed Lord Cleland and Lord Athelbert and their sons when they, protest they protested about our being outlawed. 
We all came to Sinkin' Canyons together two years ago, along with Eby and the field hands. Eby, the stuffy old house servant, bowed to Aiden. He didn't seem quite so stuffy out here in the wilderness, though his tunic was remarkably well kept. Aiden shook his hands with the six field hands he had known all his life. Aiden shook his hands with the six field hands he had known all his life. Oh, okay, the six field. Sorry. A lot of familiar faces. But there were still plenty of faces Aiden had never seen before. He was surprised to see a dozen men wearing the same standard-issue blue tunics, blue army tunics, he, Percy, and Dobro wore. Soldiers, Arrow explained. Scouts, actually. King Darrow sent a half-dozen men to track us in the canyons. And when they found us... When you found us, you mean, laughed one of the scouts. When we found them, then, Arrow smiled, they decided that life among outlaws was better than life in King Darrow's army. But that accounted for only half of the soldiers in the group. Where did the other half dozen come from? Aiden asked. They're the search party, Errol said, smiling. The ones King Darrow sent out to find the first party. And they deserted too? Aiden asked. Errol's smile faded. These men are not deserters. These are men of honor. Understand this, Aiden, and do not doubt it. We remain King Darrow's most loyal subjects. It would have been no loyalty to King Darrow if these soldiers had handed us over to certain death, leaving only time servers and flatterers in Darrow's service. No, by disobeying King Darrow's orders, these men have done him a great service, whether the king knows it or not. Aiden gave his father a long and watchful look. Errol had always taken a dim view of deserters, had always insisted on unswerving obedience to the king. Was this the same father he had always known? Now saying that disobedience to the king was service to the king? Yes, things had changed in the years Aiden had been away. And who are they? Aiden asked, pointing at a tight knot of eight or ten men gathered apart from the rest of the group and talking among themselves. Errol paused before speaking. They joined us only recently. I don't know most of their names. They're outlaws like us. They may be outlaws, Jasper muttered, but they're not like us. Errol gave his son a sharp look. He obviously didn't intend to speak candidly in the hearing of the whole group. Marvin, Errol called toward the group, you and the boys come say hello to my son Aiden. Marvin was a mountain of a man. His face was as round as the full moon and pocked like the moon too. 
It bulged against a massive quid of tobacco in his left cheek. He was bald on top, with long, thin hair straggling down the back of his neck. He moved slowly, deliberately toward Aiden, but his eyes were quick. He offered what he meant for a smile. It looked more like a sneer. It showed his big, brown-stained teeth. Towering over Aiden, Marvin extended a hand. Aiden reached out his own hand to shake. Sausage-thick fingers wrapped around it and squeezed with a crushing force that nearly brought tears to Aiden's eyes. I'm Marvin, the big man said. He pointed at the ragtag group of dirty men he he had just come from. This here's the boys. He looked at Aiden with an appraising eye and gave a snort that suggested he was none too impressed. Ain't you supposed to be the Wilder King or something? Two or three of his cronies snickered. Aiden didn't know how to respond to Marvin's remark, so he didn't respond at all. Dobro, meanwhile, was admiring the long hair that draped down the back of Marvin's neck. It was the most featureified haircut he had seen on a civilizer, and he felt an immediate connection. Marvin noticed him staring. What are you looking at, Snaggletooth? He snarled. I was just liking your hairdo, Dobro said. Ain't a lot of civilizers got that much style. Marvin squinted at Dobro, not sure whether or not this scrawny fellow was making fun of him. Coming from a feller as ugly as you, I don't know how to take that. Dobro shrugged. Take it however you want to take it. Don't make me no never mind. Marvin found himself getting annoyed at the nonchalant attitude of this ugly runt, who obviously wasn't intimidated by him. Say, boy, he said, looking intently at Dobro. How do you get so ugly? I reckon he's a Fiji, said one of Marvin's followers. Ain't I always said the Wilder King would come back with Fiji's? Dobro nodded at Marvin. He got it right. I might look like a civilizer, scrub pink and with my mane lopped off. But I'm Fiji born and bred. There was nothing civilized about the green smile he directed at Marvin or the acrid breath he exhaled in a self-satisfied sigh. Well, I don't believe in Fiji folks, Marvin insisted. And if I did, I don't reckon I'd think too highly of them. He squirted a jet of tobacco juice on the ground in front of Dobro's bare feet and wiped his thumb across his grinning lips. Dobro eyed Marvin, trying to figure out what was the proper civilizer response to such a challenge. He figured he couldn't go wrong if he responded in kind, so he worked up a nice, foamy glob of spit and let it fly right between the big man's boots. Marvin flew into a rage. He raised raised a huge fist and brought it down like a sledgehammer. 
surely would have cracked Dobro's skull if it had connected, but the Fiji was too quick for him. He scrambled between Marvin's legs and scurried up his back. Dobro reached one arm, one arm around the big man's neck in a chokehold. His free thumb, he stuck in Marvin's eye. Marvin staggered, roared, and rained blows on Dobro, but he couldn't do any real damage to the wiry Fichi. When Dobro reared back and butted the back of Marvin's head, the big man crumpled to the ground in a senseless heap. Dobro was feeling a little woozy himself. Butting Marvin's massive head was very much like butting a tree. When Marvin's followers made a circle around him, Dobro was a little unsteady on his feet, but his mouth was still working fine. I weigh about 125 when I'm friendly, he shouted, but now I'm angrified and I weigh about 700. Marvin's gang all raised their fists and made menacing faces, but none of them wanted to be the first to take on the wild man who had felled their leader. I could pick the ticks off on all you boys, Dobro roared. All at once or one at a time, whichever suits you better. Marvin's boys seemed relieved when Errol pushed through them and grabbed the raging Fiji by the shoulders. Enough, the old man yelled, barely able to suppress a smile. That's probably enough introductions for one day. With much effort, Marvin's men dragged their leader to the shady spot and revived him with stream water. The other men surrounded Dobro. They were fascinated by him, a real live Fiji, and awed that his efficient whipping of a man so much bigger than himself. Dobro basked in their admiration and kept them royally entertained with his peculiar observations about civilizer life and customs. The men would have surrounded Aiden, of course, except his father had whisked him away immediately after he had settled Dobro. Who are those people? Aiden asked as, as father and son walked up the canyon toward the camp and sleeping quarters. Marvin and his gang, where did they come from? I'm not sure where they came from, Errol answered. They came to the canyons a couple months ago, claiming to be on the run from King Darrow. So we took them in. That's what That was Athelbert's idea. Thought they would be good fellows to have on our side in a fight. Errol shook his head. They were on their best behavior for a while, but I have about decided they're just common criminals. Or spies? Aiden asked. I've considered that, Errol said, but I don't think so. I'm not sure they've got enough sense to make spies. Maybe not, Aiden agreed, but that Marvin may not be as stupid as he looks. Yeah, Marvin's trouble. He's trouble if he stays, and he may be more trouble if we send him away. Because he knows we're in sinking canyons, Aiden said. Actually, I'm starting to think everybody in Cornwall knows we're in sinking canyons. King Darrow most certainly knows. 
The problem is that Marvin and his crowd know where most of our hiding places are. They walk past a wide, deep place in the canyon stream. The miners dug that, Errol remarked. It's where we do our washing. Looks natural, doesn't it? He pointed to a crevice in the side of the canyon, no different from hundreds of cracks in the canyon wall. This is our main hideout and storage area, he said. Aiden followed his father through the crack in the wall. It was so narrow they couldn't walk through side by side. But just a few steps in, behind the first turn, the little crack broadened into a rounded tunnel, obviously dug by human hands. This is the miner's work again, Errol said, his voice echoing against the walls. It wasn't, properly speaking, a tunnel, but a widening of the crevice, which continued above their heads all the way up to the canyon rim and to the sunlight above. They continued deeper into the canyon wall until the tunnel opened into quite a large, round room. A shaft of sunlight made its way a hundred feet down from the canyon rim to illuminate the place. A few wisps of smoke curled up from a bank, a banked fire in the center of the room, and slithered up the crevice as if it were a chimney. It was all strangely beautiful. Errol pointed up into the sunlight. Sometimes when we've been to the villages to trade, we lower supplies down by ropes. This crevice is actually the beginning of a new branch of the canyon. As years go by, it will open more and more. Someday this won't be much of a hiding place. But surely we will have no need of a hiding place by then. For now, it serves just fine. Errol pointed at five tunnel entrances that opened onto the larger chamber, joining like spokes on a hub. Sleeping chambers and storage rooms, he explained. The miners dug all this? Aiden asked. How long did it take? Not as long as you'd think, Errol answered. The rest of us couldn't carry out the sand nearly as quickly as they could dig it. They're used to chipping their way through rock. The sand and clay is child's play for them. Aiden looked up at the sliver of sky visible through the crack in the ceiling. Doesn't the rain get in here? In here, yes, Errol said, but not up there. He pointed up one of the tunnels. He picked up one of the pine-knot torches that lay stacked in piles beside the wall and poked it around in the banked fire until it was lit. Follow me, he said, and he stooped to walk up the tunnel. Even if it floods... Oh, excuse me. Even if it floods, Errol explained, these chambers stay dry. The tunnels are dug on an upward slope. The sloping tunnel reached a plateau from which connected three chambers. You and Dobro will sleep here on the left with your brothers and me. Errol pointed to the chamber on the right. Here are Marvin and the boys, where I can keep a close eye on them. And there at the end of the tunnel, a provisioning room. 
He held his torch in the room to show Aiden great bags of flour, rice, and dried beans stacked in neat rows. It was an impressive feat of engineering and effort, but it was a long way from the life Aiden felt his father deserved. Father, I'm sorry, he said. This is all my fault. You're being outlawed. You're living in a hole in the ground. It's not your fault, Aiden, Errol said. You do what you have to do. We all do. Life in the canyons isn't what I expected, but it's a very good life in its way. Just a few years ago, this place seemed like alien soil, no more like Cornwall than the moon. But now it feels as if this is the only Cornwall that's left. For us, the land of the free and true has shrunk down to this one barren, God-forsaken spot. Here, we live free and true. We live like Cornwalders, something we couldn't do anywhere in the Cornwall we used to know. Here, among us outlaws, Cornwall survives. Chapter 12, Floodwaters. And we'll pick that up there another evening, kiddos. All right. I would like to pray over all you kids. And then I'm sure you need to go to bed or go do something else. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for my job at CCP where I get to do really fun things with equipment and pipe and steel and motors and pumps and wrenches and all kinds of cool things, Lord. I'm so grateful and all the fun people I get to work with. I'm very lucky to be able to work with my hands and work with really fun people and get to make oil to send down the Alaska pipeline. Father, I pray that you would give all of the kids, Lily, Gideon, Chrissy, Sonia and Garrison. I ask you, Lord, that you would give them the ability to do anything with their hands that they desire, with any material that they desire to work with, whether it's metal, wood, paint, tree branches, stone, sand, uranium, molybdenum, moon rocks, I don't know, whatever, paper. God, I just ask that you would give them all the abilities and uh, take away any barriers to them picking up any tool and working with any material or any substance out there to be productive and to, um, to contribute to a team and to make useful things and uh, just so that they would always be able to provide for themselves and their family and uh, provide richly and give richly and just enjoy the work of their hands, Lord God. And I know you will do that. You're already doing it. It's really cool to see. Um, I just 
I ask that you would give them boldness and confidence to undertake any task they they desire, any task you lay on their hearts, uh, with any tool, any piece of equipment, anything, Lord. I know uh, you'll you'll give them the power and the strength and the knowledge to make it happen. Um, Lord, bless them with brotherly and sisterly love towards one another. Even though I know it's tough being kids and it's tough being so close together so much of the time. Father, I just pray that those seeds of brotherly and sisterly love would grow and take root in their souls and in their spirits, Lord God. And uh, someday just grow into fruitful trees of uh, brotherly and sisterly love amongst all the sloggy kids. And I know you're doing that already, Lord. And I...